Toots. Hey everyone, and welcome to Brave New Church. As always, this is Brad, and this week we have a really interesting conversation to get into together. Across the world, expressions of the church and of Lutheranism are quite varied, diverse, and in some parts of the world, a Lutheran church that looks completely different from what any of us are familiar with is growing by leaps and bounds. Even while here in the United States, the Lutheran Church is shrinking and declining in most contexts. There's much that can be learned by embracing the fullness of the gospel vision that the Church inhabits, uh, not just in contexts that we're familiar with, but globally as well. But the real secret is that this rich diversity to expressions of Lutheranism is not something that can be only found on the other side of the world, in Africa or South America or Asia but in fact in our own communities here at home. This week I sit down with Lenny Duncan, who is a seminarian here at the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Philadelphia, soon to be the Philadelphia campus of the new United Lutheran Seminary. Lenny's work has been shaped around a new movement in the Lutheran Church, Decolonize Lutheranism. Now Lenny didn't come to seminary to be involved with this movement. But not too long ago, he and a group of like-minded friends came together to challenge many of the assumptions that were out there in the Lutheran world about what it meant to be a Lutheran. Today I sit down with Lenny and talk more about what it means to be a Lutheran, what it means to be a Christian, and perhaps most importantly, what it means to be relevant as a follower and disciple of Christ in today's changing world. So, Lenny, you're involved in some really interesting and innovative work in the ELCA right now with some partners across the country that really challenges uh, a lot of things in the status quo and, and calls us in new directions. And so I'd love to hear more about these the projects and the work that you're doing. Yeah, so I'm involved with this thing called Decolonized Lutheranism. And so how did that happen? Um, it really happened as a response to Charleston. So whenever mm. we talk about the history of decolonized Lutheranism, which people are asking us to do a little bit more and more lately, um, there were a group of us who, after Charleston, really kind of started communicating online. Um, at that time, I think right after Charleston, I was asked to do the webcast of Bishop Eaton. Right. So a lot of these folks reached out to me. And that was um, part of the anti-racism? Uh, yeah, the, the Confronting webcast. Racism right. webcast series. Right. Um, and so that's how a lot of these folks got to know me. And so they reached out to me, um, Francisco Herrera, uh, Tahina Rush, um, Jason Chestnut, L. Dowd. There's so many co-conspirators now in, in um, decolonized Lutheranism. So really, it started for us with Charleston. And it was this deep sense of that we weren't safe anywhere, and we never would be. Mm -hmm. And so, like, what does that mean? What does that mean that we'll never be safe even in our own sanctuaries? Right. And what does that mean to be a leader in a place that you'll never be safe? Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so we, we started playing with these ideas. Um, and then what happened was typical internet stuff. Our friend Paul Bailey was trolling old Lutheran one day. Right. And, you know, he, uh, they, you know, old Lutherans post and stuff like, you know, you might be Lutheran if you remember all the jello and liturgical colors or... <laughs> right, or if your covered dish dinner looks like this. Right, or, yeah. so that's... I remember the, the memes and the responses to Yeah, the, so that Paul emerged. wrote this really simple response. He's like, you might be Lutheran if your VBS snack is tostadas. Uh. Because Paul is at Eagles Pass, Texas, um, and it's right on the border. And he spends a lot of his time uh, not only uh, fighting for the rights of undocumented folks. A lot of folks, um, you know, we, you know, a, a lot of folks are undocumented in his ministry, and um, he uh, and he, um, you know, he spends time like leaving water out so when people are making the cross, you know, from mm. from the from Mexico to the states, they don't they don't die yeah. of thirst in a wow. desert. So, you know, he's doing some really powerful stuff. Great guy. And so it started from a place very much of, like, let's not conflate culture with theology. Right. It's it's emerged there. Right. So, you know, we had already been kind of ruminating on some of these ideas, um, you know, after Charleston and communicating, and we were already sort of a cohort online. Um, and so that happened. And so somewhere on that thread, uh, L. Dowd, we, we think... Um, was the first to say, quickly followed by Kimberly Vaughn, Reverend Kimberly Vaughn, L. Dowd's a seminary in the LSTC. Mm-hmm. L wrote, we need to hashtag decolonize Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. And when that hashtag went around, we started sharing it with each other, right? Because we're like, oh, man, this says what I'm trying to say, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, uh, um, and I think a lot of people have written a lot better about it and are a lot smarter than me. That's why I like decolonize. Everyone's so much smarter than me. Right. So it's like, a team collaborative right, right. project. But I wrote the first two blog posts about it. So the first one I wrote was Decolonized Lutheranism, um, which was like written from a very black liberation perspective, written from, uh, from, from the black experience in America and how much white Protestantism really didn't speak to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one I wrote was Decolonize the Seminary, mm-hmm. which uh, got some flack, right? It got some flack. Um, and, and because we like, we... We live into this, like, yes, um, we are a 50-50 seminary here with um, plenty of um, um, African descent folk and, right. and through, through the, through the uh, Urban Theological Institute, but they pretty much function as two separate seminaries. Right. They pretty much function as, like, I dare I say, separate but equal right. seminaries. Well, different class times, yeah, different, different worship times, right. often for... You know, very practical reasons of night students, day students, Lutheran students, non-Lutheran, but still. But and it, yeah. but so it creates this. Um, it creates this really white space, which isn't yeah. safe for a lot of our African American students. Mm. Um, but I was writing about being. Um, at the time, there were only two African American candidates for uh, word and sacrament mm-hmm. ordination and word and sacrament or the office of word and sacrament in my entire class mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so i wrote about that so that one i got some flack the third one i wrote was decolonize the liturgy mm-hmm. and that one got me death threats wow really where people like threatened my life um and said you know how dare you talk about um and so tell, tell me more about what that one was about okay. so so decolonize the liturgy was about removing the things that it, it was actually very like gordon gordon like mm-hmm. it was very much like lathrop it mm-hmm. was very much like 
Yeah, the long, long-term uh, yeah, liturgy need, professor here. At right. Yeah. So, so very much like in line with that kind of thinking. Like we need to remove the cultural things or the cultural uh, uh, um, uh, kind of accoutrements, yeah, kind of baggage. And, right, right, and get to word, bath, and meal. Mm-hmm. Like you can't get more LTSP than that. Mm. And how we need to remove the things that are in the way of the cross that have absolutely nothing to do with the with offering grace to everyone. And, and just wrote very specifically about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the responses were insane. Hmm. You know, or we don't want praise music in our... Well, I, I never mentioned <laughs> praise music. I mean, there yeah, was... People always go there. Yeah, yeah no. I mean, there was, sure. the responses were right. insane. They were, you know, and I just talked about, like... I just talked about, like, why aren't we, like lifting up uh, African experiences? Why aren't we lifting up the experiences of other folks? And why don't we move all that stuff out of the way, which we have so much adiaphora Mm -hmm. in our churches. What if we just stripped it down to the most simplest, Mm -hmm. cleanest worship service we could, Mm -hmm. where we lift up baptism, we lift up the meal, Mm -hmm. and we we lift up scripture and we preach. Mm without any of the other stuff right. that people think is weird when they come to us. And, right. and so we, our expectation is you're going to come to us and our theology is going to be so incredible that you're going to be willing right. to indoctrinate yourself into basically mid Midwestern white culture. <laughs> right. 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 Well, also because we kind of emerging out of the, the modern age, the 20th century, we have this kind of, uh, we all do it the same kind of idea. Yes. Like there's some universality to to truth, or dare I say, liturgy or right. theology, and in our postmodern world, that's simply not the case. So I mean, I don't know. That might create some space then for contextuality to provide the adiaphora or the yeah. with, with an awareness that hey, the way we do it here isn't the same as you know St. Peter's Lutheran down the street. Right, and 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 so and I, I played with that stuff like um you know uh, a study I did last year um. That, that I published was an uh, exorcism right um, mm-hmm. written. It was an exorcism right for systemic racism mm. and to be used at protests, right? Okay. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that we don't use the 1800 years of Christian um, uh, tradition. I'm saying why don't we like cut out the 1940 to like 1999 <laughs> Midwestern right. junk with mm-hmm. it. Um, and, so, and so just playing with ideas like that. And yeah. that was like a really early on idea. So I wrote the first three and we became a group mm-hmm. and we started hanging out and other people started writing more, but something happened with the Holy Spirit and it just came out of us. Um, and none of us kind of knew what was going on with it. Um, and so we started, so people started paying attention to us, which surprised us. <laughs> and, um, it always does. Yeah. So yeah. a couple. So a couple things that we realized very on is that we were going to be intersectional. That there were enough. Um, and it's not to knock the, the the work of my elders or, or or folks who've been in the church for longer than me, but there are already ethnic specific ministries mm-hmm. in the ALCA. Yeah. Um, and so like we kind of intuitively knew. Like I knew that um, when I'm talking about do Black Lives Matter in the church, that I couldn't leave behind my trans siblings. Because trans lives matter. Mm-hmm. And, and we sort of like intuitively knew mm-hmm. that we weren't going to separate our issues of right. what we were talking about. And we were going to be intersectional from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also very culturally aware. Because I think that's the way things work in the world today. Right. Yeah. So so, so we, so we, so I think that makes us, that distinguishes us. Um, the fact that we're a group of people who love each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and... 
loving people is really hard and being in community is really hard and you get called out in your bullshit a lot mm-hmm. and you might say something that really hurts someone and that it's okay that you hurt them and you need to go to them and say hey I hurt you and like I know that and like and be and like listen to like someone call you out on your stuff so like you know I and and it's also permission giving and power sharing mm-hmm. so like when my friend Ray talks about trans stuff I don't question their experience. Right. I don't question Ray's experience as a trans member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Right. And Ray doesn't question my experience and tries to tell me that I'm wrong about being a black Lutheran. And so it's a lot of permission giving Mm -hmm. and power sharing and trusting that your experience, what you're telling me, is what it is. Mm -hmm. You don't have an axe to grind. You're not angry. You might, you know, not... You might have holy anger, but you're not, like, just angry to be angry and trusting someone else's experience. And so I think that power-sharing model, believing other people's experience and and allowing folks in our group, since we're intersectional, to lead the way. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to talk about women's rights. I'm going to let the women in our group do it, and I'm going to center their voices. Mm -hmm. Um, And just like when we talk about... um, African descent stuff or or, 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 or or black liberation stuff in the ELCA, they center mine and Kwame and a few other people's voice. And mm-hmm. when, you know, we talk about Latinx stuff, we center Francisco's voice. We just we so it was a lot of like decentering ourselves mm-hmm. and working as an active community to mm-hmm. do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that sort of ended up becoming a revival that we did in, um, in October at LSTC right. Decolonize sixteen. Um, which was our first inaugural gathering. Um, so now we're doing stuff like we're building base communities around the country. Mm-hmm. We've, uh, I think we have, last I checked, we have about eight base communities going. We're training folks to uh, enter synod assemblies, Robert Rules of Order, a lot of really boring kind of right. stuff. But we're also giving people space and permission giving to do what they want in their own synods, mm-hmm. in their own context, mm-hmm. and respond to this idea that there is a dominant culture in church and the dominant culture gets to set the agenda and decide how things are. And that is a million miles away from the vision of, of, of the banquet, right? Amen. Of the heavenly banquet. It's a million mm-hmm. miles away from that. So so how do we resist dominant culture within mm. our own church while loving our church? You know, one of the things that people say, you know, I was, uh, I was at, for my endorsement, one of the questions my committee asked me was, well, what's good about the church? And mm. when I go speak about decolonize, people will be like, tell me what's good. If the church is so bad, right. if it's so full of systemic white supremacy, why are you here? And I always say, because I love my church. Mm-hmm. And we have to start, I have to start in my home. Mm-hmm. I can't just go out in the world and point out, you know. And so a big rallying cry in um, decolonized Lutheranism is the problem isn't sociological, it's theological. Mm. There's a there's something wrong and there there there's a poison pill in our theology that continues to allow these sort of systems to recreate themselves. So where is that conversation at? Because I mean the one thing I like about the decolonized movement is it it does have the sense that this it's a conversation it's a it's a setting of the table for kind of honest voicing of experience in community. But so, I know that 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 line that you just said is one that, that many people have taken exception to. The problem is not sociological, it's theological. Yeah. So t- tell me about that. So that comes a lot from, uh, I was reading a lot of James Cone, and, 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 and so it's this idea that we can't give the reformers a pass 
because we can't say Luther was trapped by his times. Mm. That, you know, Luther didn't care about the cries of the oppressed because he was trapped in his times and it was the culture and it was the way things were at that time. And we just need to give him a pass mm. because, you know, you know, that's what it that's how any white cis het male would have reacted at that time who was a religious leader. Mm. But if we're listening to scripture with a deep sense of honesty, we realize that the early church and Jesus's ministry was in resistance to empire and was constantly doing this radical inclusion constantly pulling everyone in from different segments and margins of society and that continued after pentecost Mm -hmm. and grew at an exponential level because they were pulling in folks that you never would have pulled in um, and lifting up leaders you never would have lifted up Mm -hmm. um, from each from each stage of the church's life from their cultural context and people were literally gathering and eating around a table that never would have talked to one another right yeah Yeah. even table fellowship was radical very much so and so and so so when we say that the problem is theological why is the elca so white why are you know are we either have to face that we're an ethnic-specific ministry that was just meant for Scandinavian and German folks mm-hmm. and realize that ethnic-specific ministries are terminal. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's something in the way that people gather. And when we gather in community, certain things that when you're indoctrinated in white supremacy, it just sort of mm-hmm. like comes out. It's I always compare it to believer's baptism, right? You, you get steeped in it and you come up. And it doesn't matter if you've come up from white supremacy and you realize it's going on it's still dripping all over you Mm. you're still covered in it and it's hard to see and i don't think that anyone at churchwide or here at the senate office or anywhere else i don't think that anyone's intentionally thinking about how they're going to oppress strategize white supremacy right yeah Yeah. that's not happening god i hope not (laughs) right right but subconsciously yeah subconsciously that stuff happens Mm -hmm. i mean dylan roof was an elca lutheran Exactly. Right. And so 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 it was Charleston again, which we always go back to, was this case of one of our own killing one of our own. Mm-hmm. And what does that say to us, right? Mm-hmm. Clemente Pickney was trained at our Southern Seminary and Dylan Roof was baptized and confirmed ELCA Lutheran, mm-hmm. who people want to say, oh, he wasn't there for a few years. And he right. still was kind of connected. He was as marginally connected to his church as every other teen in your right. church right now. But he'd still been ra- raised in the church and formed in the ways that we engage in faith formation. Right. And so yeah. what? And so what are we doing? Yeah. And so and so if if theology, um, uh, and if our theology informs our outlook and our public witness in the world, but our public witness is still repeating some of the same sin cycles and creating some of the same oppressive structures within our very church mm-hmm. then the problem has to be theological mm-hmm. it has to be the way that we're listening to scripture the way that we're hearing the story of god and the way we're embodying the mm-hmm. life of god i mean i have to go on searches to find a, a, a jesus i don't even want a black jesus i just want a jewish looking one right right when's the last <laughs> exactly. time you saw a jewish looking jesus hanging or at least church? have some dark hair and you know, right. not blue eyes maybe right <laughs> right so i mean so so this sort of stuff which you don't think matters matters your children are staring at that yeah. picture. If the picture of God is this Norwegian dude from a 
from a USO painting that that guys stuck in their helmets in World War II. That's where we get that picture, that very famous picture of Jesus out everywhere. Mm. It was it was a USO painting, mm. right? And what was that guy? That guy was a Norwegian Midwestern guy, and he drew Jesus how he thought Jesus would look in his own culture. Right. But that's right. not which is fair, right. but not to universalize. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so and so it it says like white is holy. Right. White is holy. Blue eyes are holy. Mm-hmm. Blonde hair is holy. You're not holy. You don't look like Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And you may say, well, you're old enough to know that. Now, Len, you're almost 40 years old. I didn't know that when I was 5, 6, right. 7, 8, 9, 10 years yeah. old. Well, and yeah. neither do our kids. Yeah, and to, I mean, to me, everything in the church comes back to discipleship, to faith formation, which you know is, is a key part of my work. So obviously that's not a surprise to anyone when I say that. But my question is, when we say it's theological, is it in our our overt stated theology or is it in the implicit kind of theological things that we instill without even being aware of them um, from an early age so if we start with luther with that stuff so it's the implicit stuff it's 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 the it's the subtle stuff that we're saying while we're not saying it it's the stuff that we don't even know about you know white supremacy doesn't need you to be a racist for white supremacy to work right. what it needs is for everyone to subconsciously listen to brad because mm-hmm. brad's the cis the cis head white dude in the room yep and so well, well what do you think brad mm-hmm. no one ever asked you know rarely do people ask me what i think because they're afraid about what i'll say right yeah, right right you know what i'm saying and so and so it's it's those it's sort of inherent implicit biases um that white supremacy is built on the fact that my grandfather served in world war ii mm-hmm. you know bishop eaton always uses this example just like probably your grandfather mm-hmm. did except my grandfather never got a house yeah exactly. and he never got anything from the gi bill i actually tracked down the records he got um one loan for fifteen hundred dollars at one point wow. which he used to pay back um some some debt but that was it he didn't get a house he didn't he didn't get he didn't get a lot of stuff that other folks got. You yep. know what I mean? He had to pay back that fifteen hundred with interest. Hmm. And so, yeah. this, you know, so no, it's complicated stuff, which is why if we, if we're not willing to talk about it and talk about it in a way that also engages our theology and our practices as the church, right? Then we don't have, and we can't say we have a relevant witness as the church in today's world yeah and, and even if we don't have the answers yeah and so and so some of the work i'm doing now so i'm doing a documentary called mm-hmm. uh do black churches matter in the elca mm-hmm. and it started out i was going to write a paper it was going to be super forensic <laughs> right it was going to be what do we say about diversity specifically in black contexts in 19 you know 89 a year after the elca was born right mm-hmm. where do we put our money Mm-hmm. And just match those two things up. Match up our theological and social statements with right. where we actually put the money. Right. Right. You want to know. You want to know what church really cares about. Follow the money. Read Follow the, budget. the money. Here, yeah. read the budgets. You it's read. a value statement. Yeah. Right. It, it absolutely is. Yeah. It absolutely is. And um, there was a huge cultural shift from the LCA in this area to the ELCA. The LCA um, model was doesn't matter if the churches in the city are ever self-supporting it's a public witness um and it was actually in response to the assassination of martin luther king Mm -hmm. um it was this intentional not to give too much of the movie away it was this intentional response to the assassination of martin luther king and the riots they saw Mm -hmm. in the city and lutherans were horrified by it and they were like oh my god like why 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 aren't we doing anything about the cities why aren't we there um and so the lca just 
didn't care. They provided uh, $1.7 million. Of inflation would be $3.5 million just to supplement pastors inner cities, in the inner city's salaries. Go a long way to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a cultural shift when we became the ELCA. And, and, and so as I started learning more about this story, I decided that I had to put stuff on camera. First, I wanted to do a couple interviews, and I didn't want to lose anything for the paper. Mm-hmm. And then as I started shooting these interviews, I realized that this should be a movie, so I reached out to Ancos Films, which is Jason Chestnut's company, who's one of my co-conspirators in Decolonized Lutheranism, right. and he agreed to do the editing um, and everything for me. And then I reached out to Tangle Blue here, mm-hmm. um, which are composers in residence, and so they're giving me royalty-free music. And so now I have this documentary coming out that's about, well, where the story's at now. It's about white Protestantisms collapsing in on itself, where it has less resources. It has, it's not at the center of culture. Um, people are less likely to listen to it, and its privileged place has been removed from it. Mm-hmm. And how, at a time such as this, right. the best people to listen to on how to survive, grow, and thrive are leaders who. We're already experiencing that because the systems that same church put into place. Mm. And so it's a story of that. It's a story about the prophetic witness that black Lutheranism has and has had going all the way back to Muhlenberg mm. and telling that story. So that's that's where my recent work's gone. There are some exciting things that the Holy Spirit is up to in our church today, both around the world and here in our North American context. And it's clear that the work that Lenny and the other pioneers of the decolonized Lutheranism movement are playing a part in that holy work to reclaim what our Christian and Lutheran identity as followers of Christ means in our time and place in the midst of the very real and challenging circumstances that we find ourselves in each day. I hope that you'll take the time to check out Lenny's new project, his documentary, Do Black Churches Matter in the ELCA. The first episode of that is already up online, and you can find that at doblackchurchesmatterintheelca.org. The second installment of the three-part series is due to come out very soon on June 30th. And so I hope you will take the time to view that as well as this project continues to move forward. I want to thank Lenny and all of the founders and co-conspirators in the decolonized Lutheranism movement because they are playing a vital part in the formation of the brave new church that God is calling into existence in this changing time that we find ourselves living in. I'll be away myself for a few weeks as I depart this Monday to travel to Tanzania to visit Lutheran companions of ours there on the far side of the globe who are practicing a rich Lutheran and Christian faith in a way that is also so drastically different than ours and yet no less faithful. And so when I return, we will focus later this summer in our podcast on what we can learn from different contexts than our own from places where Lutherans and people of faith might be living out their faith in a different way than us, that perhaps when we embrace the diversity of our Christian practice and discipleship will be exactly 
what we need for this brave new world we find ourselves living in. And so until next time, my friends, may you have your eyes open to the work of the Holy Spirit, and may you discover what God is already up to in your neighborhood.